Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by the Director and General Manager of Youth Programs at New York City FC, Brian Walsh. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Connor. Thanks for having me. Brian, obviously based now in New York, where you're joining me now from today. It's a fair cry from where it all begun, in West Dublin, more specifically Palmerstown. Um, could you take us back to your youth, perhaps, Brian? What would be your earliest football memory? Well, early school. Yeah, so front group actually started off in Clondalkin and then eventually moved to Parmistown when I got a little older, maybe I think seven or eight. But spent the first few years in, in Clondalkin playing uh, just on the streets with friends. And I think my earliest memory was probably Italian 90, where Irish football was just, it was probably the, the best time ever to grow up in Ireland around football because it was just... Um, it was just a carnival atmosphere that, that World Cup year, that World Cup summer. And we had such a good team and the whole country got behind it. And I was swept up in all football, being so young. And the neighbourhood I grew up in, in Dublin at that time, was just the same as me, just playing football all day, every day. So probably Italian 90, that summer was probably the, the year it all kicked off for me and my, I guess, love affair of the game sparked. I suppose... Now that we're speaking about Italian 90, we might as well mention US 94 because obviously the vast proportion or all of your professional career has been spent working in the States. I mean, mm -hmm. what were the set of circumstances that led you leaving Dublin, moving to the States to play college soccer? Yeah, well, I didn't even know it, this kind of thing existed until probably my fifth year in, in secondary school, uh, coming out to the States on scholarships. So it wasn't on my radar, I had no idea. But I was in a position where I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no clue, you know, what job I wanted to do, where I wanted to be. You know, all my friends that were I grew up with all kind of had a plan. They wanted to be in banking or they wanted to be, you know, tradespeople. But I was just like, I had no idea what I want to be or what I want to do. So um, one day we had a, a person come to school in Parmistown that did a, a presentation on Cloche Eid, which is a, I guess it's a post-secondary college in, in Dublin and gives people like a year gap to figure out what you want to do, whether that's in it's all different types of subjects that people go into. And she talked about scholarships to the States and we had a, a football program uh, where they would gear you and get you ready uh, to come to the States or put you in the best position to be in front of coaches that you could eventually come to the States to college or university over here. So that's where I went out after I graduated secondary school. I spent a year in Gloucester Eid and uh, I was fortunate enough to be recruited from there to here in New York. Um, and be 20 years this year, actually 20th anniversary here in the States. But yeah, so it was just the circumstances of this person showing up at school and giving us a lecture. And I'm like, oh, wow, that buys me more time <laughs> to figure out what I want to do. If I can go to school, play football and live in, live in America, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity. So luckily it all worked out. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I ended up here. Yes, and really, when you put it in context, that's 20 years ago. And you're starting to see, obviously, back then, there wouldn't have been too many, I'd imagine, Brian, that would be heading out on scholarships on like today. Yes, you're saying that, but the, the, uh, the school I went to is Mercy College. It's based in Westchester County, a little north of New York City. Uh, it has a massive Irish contingent over the years, in the, in the 80s and 90s, a big Irish uh, connection of players coming in and out. And we just got so lucky. I came with my best friend too. So the um, I, I was recruited over and then 
his center forward uh, pulled out. He wasn't coming to school. And then the coach that was recruiting me asked me if I knew anyone else that had the, the academic background and also the playing ability to potentially come with me. I was like, yeah, my best friend literally is in Clash to Eid with me. He would be a, a fantastic uh, fit for this program. And he came with me. So we grew up on the same street, you know, we're best friends since we were seven years of age. And he was uh, lucky enough to come with me. So uh, both of us have been here ever since together. Yeah, it's amazing because even when you look back then, you look even at today, back then for a lot of young players, it seemed like England or bust because the pathways weren't really sufficient there at home. But if you look at nowadays, Brian, it's a lot more pronounced, isn't it? Players going through League of Ireland Academy, uh, spend their formative years in college education and then make the move when they're 22, 23, when they have a few years racked up under their belt or the US model as well. But I suppose all things considered, you somehow <laughs> managed to pick up the coaching bug along the way. Was that always at the forefront of your mind to get into? Not really, not necessarily. No, when I came here, you know, I thought I was going to be a history teacher. You know, I first started out to be, or I'm going to be a history teacher and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do, you know, focus on the academics. And when I came to school here, I, I excelled. I was never anything in Ireland. I was always under the radar, scraping, scraping, you know, your, your, uh, through each test and your leaving cert and your junior cert. And I wasn't, the Irish academic system wasn't built for me. But when I came to the States, you know, it was a much more, uh, I guess, appealing way to learn over here it was more inclusive you, you know the ask your opinion rather than telling you what to do and i remember in ireland when i first got to to college here one of the professors asked me my opinion about something that never happened to me like in, in ireland like, the teacher never asked me anything so i excelled you know i just bought into it right away and um i always thought i was going to go into the teaching world myself i was going to be a history teacher and then i shifted a little bit i went into the business in the business school and started doing uh, the business classes and really liked them because over here, you, it's like a general, you do all your gen eds, you know, but you, you get to pick and choose some some subjects that you wouldn't necessarily think about. So I started, I picked a few business courses and I really loved them. So then I studied business. Uh, I left the, I guess, the history, the teaching, the education and went into the business uh, school. Did undergraduate there uh, before years bachelor's degree. And then I ended up doing a master's degree in business too. And I shifted my thinking. I was like, all right, I'm probably going to work on Wall Street or work in, you know, corporate America. Um, but then I was always coaching youth football all along the way, right? Not realizing that this is where I should be. I was just doing it because I love the game and teaching local kids in New York how to play and how, you know, just the, my passion of the game. And it wasn't until I did an internship at a really big firm here in New York. And it was a, it was a Monday evening. I never forget. It was a Monday evening, and we were talking about like square footage of a building we're going to purchase in like China or something. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I was looking around the room, and I was the youngest person there. I was probably about, you know, 20, 21, whatever age it was. And everyone in the room was in their 60s and maybe late 60s and 70s, and they're all, you know, seasoned corporate America people. And I'm saying to myself, hmm, if I want to be in a room at their age talking about anything, I don't want to be talking about square footage in a building. I want to be talking about football, right? So then I said to myself, all right, I need to shift gears a little bit now. I need to, you know, how can I use the skills I have in the business world that I just graduated school? How can I move that into the football world? How can I kind of create a, you know, a future for me in the game of football uh, by using my business background and also my love of the game? So, um. 
lo and behold, all these different scenarios took place and I've ended up being able to use both skills in, in the football world. But it was never, the, the, the grand plan was never there. This is what I'm going to do. It was always circumstances happened. Several things there played up, Ryan. I think a large part of it is environmental, contextual, being that if you were in that same room back in Ireland, you probably wouldn't have thought any differently. But however, the college experience which you had had previously in your formative in the States, I suppose that ability to leverage critical thinking and merge that with following your curiosities, be it business and be it football, kind of led you to scratching a niche. And I suppose it was those dynamic skill sets that would actually serve you very well in your very first big role with the New York Cosmos being put in charge of spearheading an academy program. I mean, which is an incredible task given a man such as yourself coming straight out of college, you know, the Cosmos renowned for the likes of Pele, Franz Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto. Yeah. I mean, what were some of the obstacles and the challenges you had to overcome in that position? So before I got that role, so 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 then I had full focus. I said to myself, right, I gotta make it, I gotta make a move in the football world. But you know, that's easy to say, right? You know, but you gotta graft it out, you gotta network, you gotta meet the right people. You got to let people know that you're responsible and you mean what you're what you're trying to do. So, I left the school after I graduated. I, I worked at the school for a little bit, and then I got my green card, that which enabled me to work anywhere I wanted, um, because it's definitely just visa constraints when you're in the states. You have to um, make sure you're abiding by the, the immigration laws. So I got my green card, enabled me to leave the school. Uh, so, but there was no you know, there was no job to walk into right after. So. I said, uh, I, I went to a, a, a very big uh, football college here. It's called St. John's University. And I asked the head coach if he'd take me on. And he said he hadn't got a job. But I said, I don't care. I'll work for free. So I, uh, I went with him. I worked with him and his coaching staff for a little over a year. Going there every day, just learning, networking, letting people know that I, I'm not, you know, flashing the pan. I'm not just, this is, I mean, this is a career that I want to be in. And I worked there and I coached in the evenings to, to make ends meet. And while I was at St. John's, uh, we heard rumors that the Cosmos was going to come back. And in New York, it's such a small, tight-knit uh, football community. So when the head coach at the Cosmos is obviously um, very connected in the, the world of football here, he was mentioning that the Cosmos is going to come back and, you know, they're going to be looking to hire people. Would I be interested in potentially interviewing and, I had a couple of other friends that were already employed by the Cosmos uh, and they were vouching for me also. And I said, yeah, I would love to interview with them, you know, because I hadn't got a job. I was working for free, like literally 18 hours a day I was there. Um, and then eventually I given the opportunity to meet the new, like the new president of the Cosmos. He, we met, we talked about his vision, I talked about what I could do to help him. Um, and uh, yeah, I came into the Cosmos and yeah. It was five or six years there. It was one of the best experiences ever. I didn't realize how, how amazing the experience was because until you leave, because when you're in, when you're immersed in that world, it, you know, you're just, you're just swept away, you know, you, you know, one minute I'm uh, managing the youth uh, training and development program. Then they're saying, okay, we're going to build the academy. We need people to jump in and help build the academy. You raise your hand and say, hey, I want to help you build the academy. They gave me that responsibility. And then we built the academy. We, 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 we set up all these talent identification centers all over New York. We got unbelievable talent uh, academy 
squads together, coaching staff together, and then they're saying, okay, we're going to build a B team. You raise your hand again, hey, I want to be involved in that. They made me the, uh, the B team manager, which is basically your head of all administration for the B team. So from in five years, I went from just uh, being a, the manager of the training and development program to then becoming the assistant director of that program, run, running the administration for the academy and also running the administration for the B team, all under my remit. So I was basically in charge of football from four years of age right up to the right before the first team. So that was an amazing experience. And when you think back, you know, you're like, wow, how do they manage? Because you're, you know, how do you sleep in the day? Because there's so much to do, but it was an unbelievable opportunity. Um, but to go back to your original question, sorry for rambling on there. Oh, but no, uh, no. some of the obstacles we faced was, was you know, uh, you know, space constraints, budget constraints, you know, making sure that you're, you're you know, in New York, playing space is so limited so you had to kind of wrestle how how can you work with the local community while also trying to get your programs on running too and just uh and finding the best players too you know for the for the the academy and also the reserve team and remarkably enough the first year of the of the b team we won the national championship which was absolutely crazy you know a whirlwind of uh i think it was eight months from our first tryout to win the national championship that summer and in that summer, we played in front of, I think it was 20,000 people in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was a, a whirlwind of a, of a year, but a, also a whirlwind of like four or five years at the Cosmos. On a separate note, obviously, you get a lot of people reaching out to you, Brian, asking you for career advice or pathways as to break into the game from an executive level or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you think the current cohort, the current generation, probably myself included, we're kind of short there taking that initiative. You know, we're afraid to get our hands dirty in terms of working those 17, 18 hour days. I mean, I haven't heard of too many people, to be honest, in a pro or semi-pro scene willing to, you know, work for free, put their hands up, get involved in A, B and C, and then try to go to work and make ends meet in the evening. I don't know. Yeah, I get Unfortunately or unfortunately, I get pinged probably three, three or four times a day on LinkedIn of people looking for a job or looking for this or looking for that. And you can't reach out. To, I can't answer everyone's email because it should be too much. But my story is a lot different than other people's. You know, I'm not saying mine is the only way to go. But for me, that was the only way I saw how I could break into this world because it's so competitive. It's, um, it's so niche, you know, and it's so competitive. And, you know, if you're willing to stand out or you have to, you have to try and stand out, right? Whether that's you're willing to put a shift in, you're willing to work, you're willing to meet the right people. But for me, that was the only way that I thought I could do it. And luckily enough, it's worked out so far. Um, but I got people in my office that work in different departments that send out one resume right after they graduated college and they're working, you know, in, in the, their, their dream job. But for me, it was completely different. I had not, I was not that lucky. Um, but yeah, I've, I've the only advice I'd give people that are trying to break into the football world or any world is to is to network and let people know that you're uh, you're responsible and hardworking and you're willing to get your hands dirty for sure. I think it's all how you frame the perspective too. And as you said, working five six years at the Cosmos startup as such, being able to put your name on a project, being able to show people that you can be held accountable, that you mean what you say, and um, was the perfect standard bearer for a club like New York City FC to come in. I mean, what were the set of circumstances that led to that opportunity, Brian? 
Yeah, like I had one 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 goal every morning at the at the St John's University was to beat the head coach into the office every morning because he got to the office at like six o'clock every morning. So I had to get there by fifty nine just to show him that I'm there before him. Um, he beat me a few times now, but probably over the course of the year I probably got in a little bit earlier than him the, the majority of the time. Um, but the circumstances from leaving the Cosmos to to NYCFC. Um, Unfortunately, the Cosmos ran into some financial issues and they were looking for a new a new owner. And in, in, in that, uh, I think it was over Christmas, actually maybe five years ago this uh, this year, um, there was a situation where we were all furloughed as employees where we weren't getting paid. But we were still working because in the youth football world, you know, if we didn't go to work, the kids weren't going to play. And that's the last thing we wanted to do. So we were working and we were making sure the kids were, were getting through their training sessions and, and putting the best our best foot forward for the kids. And um, there was there was rumours that there was going to be a new owner, but nothing was ever materialising. And then I had the opportunity to meet Claudia Reina, who was a sporting director at um, NYCFC at the time. He's now at Austin FC. And we met him and we talked. And uh, just uh, randomly enough, I was travelling to England the following week I, I met with Claudio just on a vacation just to watch uh, a couple of football matches in the Premier League and one of them was Man City against Spurs and I just mentioned to him oh by the way you know I'm actually heading over to Manchester you know two or three days to watch the Spurs match and he goes oh really and you know he, he remembered that and he reached out to me about a day later and says hey I want you to meet one of my colleagues out of Manchester I want you to just have a conversation with him and uh, I think he's going to be interested in what you you know your experience and your background and maybe you know just just but it was never any offer of a job it was just more of a conversation and I went to Manchester I, I went to the, the CFA with the City Football Academy and just met some of the, the the people over there and talked about my background my experiences what I've done if I had the chance to do it again what I would do uh, and from that conversation it kind of snowballed pretty quickly they offered me a job the following week and wanted me to to build their uh, youth programs department. And here we are five years later. Oh, overnight success. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, but yes, it was just, and I'm sure Claudio was uh, doing his research in the background too, talking, asking about me, making sure it was, was what it did was, was, was accurate. And thankfully he took a shot on me and would be returning that favor forever. Of course. I mean, looking at the magnificent facility you guys have in Orangeburg, we were just discussing off camera, given my roots in Pearl River, just down the road. But um, mm -hmm. I mean, how does the day today now and the roles and responsibilities differ today as opposed to at the very start five years ago, going into the club? Yeah, so five years ago, I was the only employee in my department. Um, so I was doing everything, you know, trying to, you know, get the word out, run sessions, do the market, like, you know, we have a massive uh, operation within the club, but you're the, the only person connecting all the dots and you're trying to um, do everything. But now we're a little, we've got more support staff um, within the department and we're a little bit more slicker than just me doing everything. But, we, you know, it's all steps. You know, we, we, we've grown exponentially over the last five years. Actually, next week, two weeks' time, will be our fifth anniversary of the department. You know, from that day one, we've we've... We graduated about 20 kids into our academy. We have uh, seen about 25,000 kids 
that come through the program in that five years. Um, and we've what other really amazing statistics. We and we delivered a 30,000 hour of coaching uh, a couple of weeks ago. So we're in so many different communities uh, all over the region. We've got about 40, 35, 40 coaches delivering every single day. And they're out there um, trying to identify talent, but also uh, trying to be great ambassadors of the club and engaging with kids from all ages, trying to make them fans of the club. It's amazing too that you said that at the end, making them fans of the club. Because what, I start, what I'm starting to see now, not only in North America, but in Europe too, is clubs are looking at, they're having a broader focus now on what it means to be a youth player. Not even a youth player, a young fan within an academy, within a club. And I think at New York City, I see what you guys do in terms of providing these community hubs, coach mentorship programs, the mini blue pitches. It's absolutely incredible. And your spread is not only limited to New York City itself, but over the five boroughs, over Westchester County, over Connecticut, I may add. And you're starting to see the fruits of that labor come true. Kids joining from talent centers, joining the academy and whatnot. But how pivotal a role, I suppose, is patience to the whole process, just consistency of, of execution? Because I imagine, as I said before, it cannot be a, an overnight success in one of the world's biggest metropolitan hubs to, to boot. Yeah, so we have three. So in, in the club right now, we have three youth departments. We have our city and the community, and they focus totally in New York City. That's the blue pitches. That's uh, all our community initiatives are run through them. We have the youth programs department, which is a little bit more spread out than the than New York City. We have New York City programs, but we also in the suburbs and in Connecticut. And then we have our academy, which specifically focuses on those, you know, 100, 120 kids that are the best of the best in their age groups. Um, so in my department, which is the youth programs department, and I, I try and be a conduit between both of those other departments, try and, you know, be uh, someone who can give advice or share resources or work together to make things more efficient because it's, as you said, it's such a massive population here. And it's, it's, it's uh, you know, we're always trying to do the best with sharing coaches or making sure uh, we we're on the same page. Um, but yeah, it's um, the patience is, is key, right? You know, and the first thing, I tell my coaches is you have to be a good ambassador of the club. You need to let these kids know that you are a representative of NYCFC and they will become fans of you. If And the families will become fans of you if you're delivering, if you're professional, and because they're going to see you as a role model. So with those 35, 40 coaches that are out there every single day, they're creating that, I guess, that momentum of fandom. And those kids will come to our matches. They will buy the jerseys or they'll they want to play for us or whatever that is. But that's the main thing is, is making those kids fans because um, they may not be, you know, if they're five or six right now, they may not develop into the player they're supposed to develop maybe for two, three, four or five years from now. So as long as we know who they are and we've seen them, we can engage with those families and, and be patient and making sure we're covering as much as the, the metro area as we can. It's absolutely, absolutely, absolutely monumental. And one thing of note, which I'm very interested to see in the flesh, is the mini blue pitches. I'm not sure if you're familiar, there was a graphic going around on Twitter a few weeks ago. Uh, Brian, there was an inverse relationship in several of the big European cities between the number of professional players produced per, uh, per thousand 
with the ones that had the lowest number of green pitches. And at the top was Paris and London. Not sure if I explained that correctly or not. But what I mean by that is the street soccer scene in New York, I think, has so much latent potential. It's just a thriving subculture. And I think you guys going in there and just tapping into some of the hidden gems at your disposal is absolutely key and it's huge for the community. But, I mean, getting back to that, you've been in the US, right, for 20 or so years now, Brian. I mean, during your time there, how much has the player pool changed in terms of the diversity of player coming through at the moment? Well, tremendously. But before I get to that, let me just mention that our city community department, they're the ones who oversee the blue pitches and roll and build them. So we've got 50. We announced our 50 there a couple of weeks ago. But we also announced we're going to build another 26 before the, the World Cup that will be here in 2026. So we'll have 50 plus to 26 uh, blue pitches in this region. Uh, and they're, yeah, so they're being used every single day. Kids jumping on, just planes pick up, which is, which is uh, fantastic to see. So the fruits of that will be seen in the future, right? As you said, you know, London and Paris have seen it because they probably have them more. But you see, um, we, I see kids playing in those pitches every single day and it's, it's just so, so gratifying to see. Um, but yeah, but um, when I first got here 20 years ago, the coverage of the Premier League and the coverage of football wasn't there, right? So you'll, you, you, when I got here, you may see a player wearing, you know, Man United jersey or Liverpool jersey or in some sort of national team jersey. But now, 20 years later, the football's on every single day. You can watch just about every match in every league. Kids are bought into it. You've seen jerseys. You've seen uh, pre-season tours. They're all here because um, the kids are swept up in it. And with, with the video games and FIFA and just see the, the internet with Messi and Ronaldo, they've just, it's just exploded. Um, so now you're just seeing kids who are able to talk about the game. Have, you know, they understand stats and they're understanding you know, transfers and it's a completely different world than when I first got here 20 years ago um, in terms of access to the game, access to watching the game. But, you know, we're still largely participated, but access to watching international football has definitely exploded in the 20 years I've been here. I think that ties in nicely to the nuance of what you discussed earlier on about your coaches not only being coaches, but ambassadors, ambassadors mm -hmm. being facilitators providing them with the correct environment, providing them with the tools and means they have to play the football they want, which is ultimately gratifying for someone like yourself in that position. But then zooming out a small bit, Brian, obviously New York City FC is just one small arm of the city football group. And of course, you're a big part of the global football education department there. I'd imagine the ability to have some of these conversations with your colleagues in Manchester, Melbourne, down in Montevideo, and Uruguay over in India must be absolutely fascinating in terms of what you guys can pull and share with one another. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we got uh, the football education department is a global department. New York is just one of of the many uh, hubs we have around the, around the world, um, and we speak regularly. You know, once a week I speak with the Manchester City guys. Uh, two days ago I was speaking with um, my co my counterpart in Uruguay. But yeah, we're. We share knowledge, we share resources, best practices. And, but yet yeah, it's always reassuring to know that someone else, <clears throat> excuse me, is just a phone call away that's dealing with the same headaches and the same situations and opportunities that you have elsewhere that you're, I guess, part of the same family. But yeah, it's been, uh, it's, it's been a unique 
the working environment for sure. <coughs> and I suppose it's a testament to the entire organization, Brian, and to your own club itself that not only <coughs> all this investment in youth development programs, which is obviously huge and it's been going on for the past seven or eight years, New York City FC's role within the community, but it's also nice to win in the present. And therefore, I suppose how pivotal a milestone was that recent championship win for the club before Christmas, seeing some of the videos, seeing the town mayor, Bill de Blasio, getting involved even. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, it was great to be swept up in that for sure. It was amazing to be part of. I think it was the first championship in New, a professional New York team has won in, I think, a decade. And we got, obviously, some of the biggest sports clubs are here in baseball and basketball and hockey. And we were the first ones to um, win it a major championship but yeah it, it was amazing and not only that it was uh, it was won by uh, a team that was made up of a couple of our academy players um, and but yeah it was just fantastic I think I zero to I, I, I zero uh, work involved in me winning that championship but definitely I enjoyed that that championship as much as anyone within in the club but yeah it was, just, it was so so cool to be to be part of and I'm so excited for the kids in, in all the community programs and in our programs that will get to see the trophy because we'll be able to bring that trophy to many of the events over the next uh, next 12 months. And obviously it's going to be a huge legacy milestone going forward for not only the kids in the academy, but people like yourself who've been working astoundingly and so hard behind the scenes. But when, it, when it's all said and done, Brian, I mean, where do you guys see the future of the youth development program within your organisation? over the coming five to 10 years. Yeah, so as I mentioned, we're, we're, we are, my department is, is five years old right now. Um, I see us growing, keep growing year over year. Um, I'm always hesitant to, to put a percentage growth every year because a big part of our growth is based on the quality of the person or coach that we bring in because um, we want to make sure that whatever coach we bring in is able to deliver the training sessions to the level that we want them to deliver. So we don't want to bring put someone in a tracksuit to throw them out there because that's not going to be good for the club or good for the kid that's there to, to try and be developed. So as long as we can um, grow our coaching pipeline and keep them engaged and educated, and um, then our, our department will grow. So we went from zero, um, zero kids in our program five years ago. And in that five years, we've seen 25,000 kids so I, I, I can't tell you where we're going to be in the next five years, but it's going to be, uh, we're going to continue to grow, but we've just got to grow steadily and make sure that we're, we're, we're delivering the programs and the, the coaching that, at a standard that, we're, that we stand by, you know. I think it's absolutely excellent. And then when you have this Winter's World Cup 2026 upon the horizon, I think the health of youth soccer, youth football in the States is a lot more, it's a lot healthier, but it's, I, I think the, the, trajectory, the trajectory is certainly upward over the coming years. I think it's a lot more sustainable than it was before. Coaching education starting to meet the, I suppose, the athleticism and the raw talent pool you guys have there at the moment. And I think everyone's just looking forward to seeing the US kind of awakening or reawakening as a sleeping giant over the coming years. But um, as we draw to a close, Brian, just a few quick fire questions before we go. Um, what's one thing you would take from the US to Ireland and one thing you would bring from Ireland to the US in terms of youth development? 
Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and again, I'm 20 years removed from Ireland, so whatever I say is probably happening or not happening right now. So you wouldn't know um, by the accent. <laughs> <laughs> so when I grew up, I was just always we're always out there playing, right? We get friends after school. You know, sometimes I, I don't see that happening over here. So if we can bring that, and it's a lot different. The environment's different. The challenges, the territory's a lot larger. So, you know, when you're uh, in Ireland, you can just cross the road to your friend's house or you know cross the street over here it's a little different um just this this first the size of the the states and the, the cities and what have you but uh, you know having that kind of pickup mentality and, and we 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 developed a program this year called the free football football program is to try and give kids that opportunity to to understand that they don't need all the fancy coaches out there for them to play all they needed was the opportunity to to uh, give them the tools to understand that all you need is a ball, really, to play with your friends. So we rolled that out this year, and we we've seen you know almost two thousand kids participate in that program. So hopefully, we gave them the initiative and the tools and the the knowledge to say, you know what, we don't need to wait for a training session twice a week to play football. We can play anytime. And once the kid left that program, we gave them a football too. So there was there's no excuse now. You know, you have, you have your ball. We were given you know, the knowledge of how to set up your mini pitches and, you know, put your jumpers down and just play football. Um, so we'd love to grow that aspect all over New York um, is, is giving kids the chances to play the game, you know, just play, play, play. Um, and what I would bring from here over to Ireland? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, I don't know. It, you know, it, it was done correctly. And again, I'm 20 years removed from Ireland, but if it's done correctly, and I've seen it being done correctly, is having the parents being involved in uh, in the in the players or in in your teams that you're coaching's development, because the American parent is very engaged in their extracurricular their kids' extracurricular activities. But if you can get those those parents on side and and buy into what you're doing, they can be a huge benefit for the player when when they're driving home after a match or if they're at home and they're sitting and playing the PlayStation, whatever it is, that parent can definitely, you know, the American parent is definitely more willing to understand what, you know, what you're doing on the training pitch and try and re reinforce that at home. And when I, when I grew up in Ireland, you know, the communication from the, my coach to my parents was probably zero, you know, because there was no text messages 20 years ago, right? There was no, uh, no emails, there was no videos to share, but, and again, this is probably happening now in Ireland. I obviously, I'm, I'm not living there, but the, the parents that we have in our programs, uh, our youth programs, are definitely engaged in what we're trying to do, and they're definitely reinforcing that at home. And when you once you have to buy in, and you may not be winning games, right? But if the parents are seeing what you're trying to do and we are communicating with the parents, um, they're probably willing to be more patient, and the wins will definitely come. But having that buy in, the parents is I was being helpful for me here some of the roles that I've had. Yeah, and as you elaborated upon before, Brian, it's never just about the football, is it? I think it's testament about that big holistic picture. Um, not only... Yeah. Yeah, so we, we, we always tell kids in our programs, you know, we there's, um, there's non-negotiables in, in everything, right? In life, and in, in, in training, you got to come in time, you got to, you know, greet your teammates, say hello, good boy wear the right equipment, you know, being a good person on the field is going to make you a good person off the field. And if you're not a good person off the field, there's a good chance you're not going to be a good teammate off on the field, right? 
Um, so, you know, you have responsibilities, you know, to get into training and making sure you've got the right equipment, you've got school responsibilities. Um, so the holistic, every, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not just your technical ability on the ball. It's your, it's your, your whole person, right? You got to make sure that you're a good person on and off the pitch. That's what's going to make you a good teammate, right? So we're always reinforcing those, those concepts to kids that are within our programs. And then finally to close, Brian, I suppose for anyone out there listening to this that may feel a small bit inspired by your own journey and wish to embark on something similar, what advice would you have for them? Um, you know, you, you know, you bet on yourself, right? If, if you, if I bet on myself, you know, and it kind of worked out, <laughs> I guess, up until this point. But, um, yeah, as long as you're, you're betting yourself, you, you got a plan in place, you, you know, you talk to people, you let people know what your plan is. Because anyone who would listen to me or I, who I talked to in the football world when I was trying to figure out things, they knew exactly I wanted to be in the football world, right? And then, that, and then when opportunities came about or, you know, they remembered that I was trying to be that person, you know, so I'm sure that helped me a lot. Um, but just, you know, bet on yourself and do everything you can, I guess, to, to put the best foot forward and, and to let people know that you're uh, responsible and, you know, you're, you're willing to, to work hard. I think that's testament to the journey you've been on thus far, and I don't see uh, the wheels slowing down anytime soon. But um, Brian, look, it's been absolutely enlightening to hear from yourself and gain further detail and insight as to your own role within New York City FC and what came before it at the Cosmos. Um, there's a lot of golden nuggets for all those there listening to take away from it. But if anybody wishes to keep up to date with yourself, I mean, where's the best place to catch you? Um, yeah, you can reach out to me. I guess LinkedIn, but um, I'm on LinkedIn or social media. But if you ever come to New York, give me a shout. You know, it's pretty accessible. You'll probably see me on football pitches all over. I was actually on football pitches all this week. But yeah, you can, I'm not hard to find, but it can be, it can help anyone, you know, I will, but um, just, yeah, reach out. It's pretty simple to get hold of me. You got hold of me and you're in the Middle East, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it always helps when you share the same surname. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's just a guy, a long lost cousin of mine. <laughs> All in card, yeah. I think the last time we were on a Zoom call, you introduced me to the two kids as <laughs> your long lost cousin. Yeah, I believe they're quiet still. They're downstairs right now. My actually, my daughter's in uh, playing basketball, which is pretty cool to see. So even though I'm going to basketball training every every Saturday, I'm picking up some nuggets from the basketball coach that I can bring into the the, the football world. You never have that idle mind, do you? It's always wondering. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ryan, thanks for coming on. Been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.